Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua, and I will be your host as we dive into today's topic. We are continuing on season three, so if you are new starting with this episode, do not start with this episode. Go back to episode one of season three at the least. I would recommend going back to episode one of the entire podcast. But if you're not going to do that, at least start at the beginning of the season. Or if you want a little more context without going all the way back to the first episode, then you can start with that interim period right after season two. So if you look at the numbering of the episodes, it's 2.1, 2.3, so on and so forth for season two. And then once we get to just whole episode numbers, I think that might be... 90-something, if I remember right, then that is kind of an interim period between Season 2 and Season 3. A lot of extremely good content there, so highly recommend that if you are new to the show. Other than that, I am going in with the assumption that you are familiar with past few episodes of this season, and you are familiar with all of the content I have covered up until now, which is a lot. So again, if you don't think you are, please go back. But... If you are, and assuming you are, it is wonderful to have you here. Today's episode will be focused on the natural order, or at least we'll be introducing this idea. So the season as a whole is looking at the example of the early church as a kingdom within a kingdom, a movement that started within an opposing culture and under an opposing state with opposing views of both of those things, and comparing that to modern alternative movements in this type of thing. So right now we're building out some of the philosophy and theology of what they would have believed and why, and how that does correspond and correlate so well with what is believed today by people like anarcho-capitalists, voluntarists, agorists, libertarians even mostly, that type of person who might view the state as an institution that is corrupt and immoral. They might look at these mega corporations and the things that they have going on as also being corrupt and immoral, and instead try to live their life according to a set of values or morality, something like the NAP, for example, the non-aggression principle. And so this episode is continuing on with that idea, and it'll be a short series on the natural order. So the idea here is that there is this order of things in our universe, and this would apply to all different kinds of things, but it can be viewed and it can be understood just by looking at nature, just by looking at the way the universe works, looking at history, looking at human nature, all of these things. If we just look at the world around us, there are some things that we can divine from that to an extent. And this first part of the natural order is going back to what some other peoples believed and what they drew out from looking at the world around them and how that corresponds with what the early Christians believed and what was written down in the biblical texts as well. And so pairing together these different mythologies and religions and philosophies, I think that should give us a good view of... Uh, basically an introduction to this idea of the natural order. So the first group that I want to look at today is the Greek philosophers. Now, the Greek philosophers did have a view that in the beginning was logic, reason, and order. 
Some believed there must have been an entity, a first mover, which was the source of the order of the universe. So basically, nothing can come out of nothing. There had to have been something that got things started at the very least. And that something would have been some sort of entity or first mover, some force that existed. And that was in Greek philosophy. Aristotle talked a lot about this. And this would be the opposite of chaos. So you have chaos and you have order. Those two things are the opposite. And logic, reason, these types of things are in line with order, whereas chaos might be in line with destruction, decay, that type of thing, disorganization, disorder. So the term commonly used for this original divine reason or power was logos, according to the Greek philosophers. This is the term translated word in English if you read the biblical texts. So for example, in John 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now keep in mind where I use the word word, that is the translation, the more actual better translation, I would say, would be logos, where it would be in the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. In the Greek, that's how it is. Now, moving on to the next few verses, it draws out a very similar concept to what the Greeks believed. It says, he was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So I guess that is, I guess, a little metaphorical here. But the idea we can distill from this is that nothing started from nothing. It says all things were made through him, and without him, not anything made that was made. So there wasn't anything that came into being without there being the logos that started it and created it and made things, brought things into being. And it says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So you've got a few concepts here where you got the idea of life, and that would be in line with order, not chaos. Remember, chaos is more about destruction and deterioration, whereas order is about life. It's about organization. It's about things being structured and continuing on. And so that is in line with that idea of order. And the life was the light of men. You have this uh, dichotomy here between light and darkness. The next verse is the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So it's the same idea of chaos and order. You have chaos is the darkness. You can't see anything. You don't know what's going on. That's chaos. The light is the order. You can see everything. You can understand what's going on. Everything is visible. That is more in line with order. So it's again, this idea of order and chaos, life order, and light is order. So that's what's going on here. And it's very similar to this idea that the Greeks had. Then if you go into Romans, this would be chapter one, verse 20, just another very short one that brings out a similar concept that is really in line with the Greeks. And this says, for ever since the creation of the universe, his invisible qualities, both his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen because they can be understood from what he has made. Therefore, they have no excuse. And so 
he's talking about how humanity in general should be able to look at the world around them and clearly see that there was something, there was a divine nature that was responsible for this world that they live in. And that entity or that force or that logos would have had to have been eternal in nature because, again, something never starts from nothing. You can't have something from nothing. There always had to have been a something to be that first mover. And with this, if there was a something before there was anything else, then that something would have been eternal. It would have been outside of time. So just by looking into this philosophy and viewing the world around you, uh, according to Paul in Romans, these things are clear. These can be seen. These can be understood. So at a bare minimum, you should be able to divine that there is this logos and that this logos is both eternal and powerful and divine. And this actually is something that many of the Greek philosophers did talk about. Now, while the Greek philosophers and John in the Bible both use this term logos, and they are referring to the same thing. And even the way that Paul uses that explanation in Romans about the beginning of the universe and divining the eternal nature and divine nature of God, these are all talking about this same concept. And logos is a word that is used multiple times in the Bible, and it is used many times by the Greek philosophers. And Basically, the writers of the New Testament were writing oftentimes in Greek, and they were at a bare minimum bringing in this Greek concept of logos because the Greek philosophers had figured this out. This was something that they knew. This was a base that they could work with. Kind of like what I'm doing, laying out this idea of the natural order, a lot of people can understand and already have this base foundation of, yeah, there is a natural order to the to the universe. Yes, there is a difference between order and chaos, and order is in general good and chaos is in general bad. And of course, there's always caveats and things that are external to this philosophy. But in general, that is a base that we can start from. And in general, the idea of logos is a base that both of these groups were working off of. So the understanding of the Greek philosophers was severely lacking from this perspective, but their philosophical explanations and their conceptions of logos are what the biblical writers are referring to when they use that term as well. Now, this is something that comes up in the Old Testament as well with a totally different language and a different example. So this example would be the Hebrew word for word as it gets translated in English, and that would be debar, at least if I'm pronouncing that correctly, D-A-B-A-R. And debar does mean word, but it, like logos, refers to much more than word, simply the way that we think of it. So it can mean speech as a whole. It can mean a concept. It can mean a thing. It can mean a command. And it can mean other similar things. So at times, 
Debar takes on multiple connotations, such as when the word of the Lord is spoken or the 10 words are given. That is what is translated for us, the 10 commandments. And the word of the Lord is, these are capital W word and capital L Lord. This is talking about not just the words themselves that God is using and saying, but it's talking about the concepts, the revelations that God is getting across to the people. This is the word of the Lord. This is revelation. This is something that he is explaining to people. It's not just a few words or a word. And so you can see how the word debar, just like the word logos, means a lot more than just simply word. So oftentimes when the word debar gets used, it is denoting that there are concepts, principles, structures that are a part of God, and he wants to impart these things to mankind in a way that they can receive them. This is the rhetoric of God in the Bible. So an example would be the principles of Mosaic law. These weren't new principles. Love one another is basically something that sums up all of Mosaic law, and that wasn't anything new. Treat your fellow man with kindness and love. Take care of each other. These are principles that had been around long before Mosaic Law and the Hebrews were a people group. So these things would have been a part of God's order from the time that he created everything. So from the beginning, there is an order. There is structure. God is logic and reason. He is order and structure. It's this idea of logos, just like the Greeks talked about, and just like the Hebrews then later talked about, and the New Testament writers, the Jews, also talked about later. So the idea is that God is both logos and debar. God is both the first mover and the logic and reason and structure and order behind the universe, and Debar, God is all of these same things, plus more principles and commandments and revelation and all of these things, this rhetoric that he is imparting to mankind. Both of those things describe this same entity. So these are concepts that we mere humans can use to understand some aspects of God and concepts that he uses to express himself to us. We use the scriptures to study things of God, and that's another example. People say the word of God when they talk about the Bible. Well, it's not just some words. There's a lot more to that. The scriptures are much more than mere words in the English sense of the word word. They are debar and they are logos. They go far beyond mere words and stories. So while the span of classical Greek thought is very vast, there are a few other aspects that do stand out as being interesting and in line with this dive that we're doing here. There are references that... It is obvious that when the gods created sentient humanity as the top and unique species on earth, they would have modeled this species in their own likeness. So the gods must be like us to an extent, but at a much higher level. That's the way the Greeks viewed their gods. Their gods were relatively human. They even had a lot of human 
failures and uh, negative aspects to their personalities and these types of things. And they looked like humans to an extent. They usually had some differences, of course. But it's this idea of man being created in the image of the gods. And that comes right out of Genesis as well. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so it's this same concept. Now, Aristotle mentions that there is a form of sanctification that comes from repeated acts of virtue. And the way he describes it is that as we do virtuous acts repeatedly, we become more and more virtuous. And that is kind of the evolution of a man becoming a virtuous man. And hopefully it is obvious that when I use the word man, I am not just talking about males. I am talking about humankind and man is short for humankind. And at least in the classical sense, that is the way it would have been understood. Whereas in today's woke world, it is politically incorrect to use that phrase. But I am using it anyway, so deal with it. Now, when we refer back to the Bible that we're comparing all of these things to, you have a group of verses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And again, if you think of what Aristotle was talking about when he talks about repeated acts of virtue, making people more virtuous, here are the verses from 1 Thessalonians. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification." And so it's this idea of sanctification, that they take the things they're supposed to be doing, and they walk this out in their actual life, and they do it more and more, and this is the will of God for them to become sanctified, this process of sanctification. And again, going back to the previous episode, they're always seeking the ideal even though, realistically, you're never going to be perfect, but you are still seeking to be as perfect as you can. You're still seeking perfection, even though, in reality, it's you're never going to reach that. That is always still the goal. You are always becoming more and more sanctified. And that's, again, an idea that goes uh, right in line with what Aristotle talked about, the Greek philosophers. So another example would be the Stoics here. So the Stoics were big on natural purpose and our role in life. They largely believed that we should use our natural skills and aptitudes for beneficial and virtuous ends. So they talked about how all people have a role to play. They have a role to fill. They have certain skills, certain aptitudes, certain things that they are good at, and those are the things that they should do. And they should do those things for the good of themselves and everybody else. And that was your kind of role in life. That's where you find meaning in life, according to some of the Stoics. So this would be like Marcus Aurelius, if you read Meditations. He talks a lot about this. This comes up multiple times. So for the biblical example here, that would be 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. As each one has received some spiritual gift, he should use it to serve others, like good managers of God's many-sided grace. And so this is the idea that different people have different skills, different spiritual gifts, different things that they can do, and they should use these things to serve others for the benefit of 
other people. And that is how you can be good managers of what God has given to you. And that would be your aptitudes, your skills, the things you're good at. So it's right in line with kind of that stoic philosophy. And I'm not going to get into it here because it would take way too long, but I could do entire episodes on comparing the book of Ecclesiastes to something like Marcus Aurelius's Meditation or other Stoic writings, because the book of Ecclesiastes is Stoicism to an extent. It is very, very, very close to what a lot of the Stoics were saying, and there are so many comparisons that you could draw out of that. So that would be, I guess you could count that as another example, but I'm not going to dig into that completely. So the Greek philosophers also saw that there was a natural order to the created world. So being in line with this order would be the correct path to take in life. Chaos and order are opposites, and therefore we should avoid chaos while actively living in a manner that aligns with the natural order or the logos. And again, this is Greek philosophy. Now, you could go back to those verses that I read before about in the beginning was the word and everything was made through him. That's the idea of the logos. And you have the other one in Romans that I read earlier that you can divine an order of things in the universe and you can see that God exists and that he has both eternal power and a divine nature. These are things that you can understand from the world around you, this natural order. And the other one I'll add to this would be 1 John chapter 2, verse 4 through 6. Anyone who says, I know him, but isn't obeying his commands is a liar. The truth is not in him. But if someone keeps doing what he says, then truly love for God has been brought to its goal in him. This is how we are sure that we are united with him. A person who claims to be continuing in union with him ought to conduct his life the way he did. And so, again, it's this idea that you live your life in line with the natural order, that that is the correct path to take in life. And again, that is pretty much exactly what the Greek said. And so there's a lot of parallels here. Now, going to Plato, and probably the one book that I've referenced more than any other in this podcast would be Plato's Republic. And in that is Plato's Allegory of the Cave. And an aspect of that, at least, is exploring this idea that the things we see in this world are mere shadows of a higher and better world, a perfect realm. We are just seeing the forms, but each one of these has a perfect form. So there is a very similar concept to this in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 9 through 12. For our knowledge is partial and our prophecy partial. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, argued like a child. But now I have become a man. I have finished with childish ways. For now we see obscurely in a mirror. But then it will be face to face. Now I know partly. Then I will know fully, just as God has fully known me. And so again, it's this idea of everything is partial. Everything we see and understand is partial. We see as if obscurely in a mirror, we can't really see everything clearly. But there is this perfection. There is something to be understood. There is this perfect world. And although we might just see the forms, we might just see an aspect of that, it is a representation of something ideal. 
And again, you know, you can obviously see these comparisons here. Now, there are lots of stories of the gods coming down and having relations with human women and their offspring being demigods. These would be the heroes of great renown in Greek mythology. And there are so many examples of this, and I guess there's no real point in listing all of them. I'm sure you at least think of one or two off the top of your head. But this is a concept in Greek mythology over and over and over again. And so I can read Genesis 6, verse 4, where it says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the ancient heroes, men of renown. So again, it's the same idea of the gods coming down and having relations with human women and their offspring being great and heroic, men of renown, ancient heroes. Uh, this is you know, obviously a very similar thing here. Now, there are some stories specifically in Greek mythology. I was reading the story of Hercules to my son. This is probably a year and a half ago or more. And reading all of the things that Hercules did, there's one point where he had to go to this island that was like a perfect garden, and he had to go to a tree and pick an apple. And in the process of this, there was some evil presence there that was trying to stop him that he had to defeat. And then he had to get this apple. And, you know, it's very similar to this story of the Garden of Eden and the apple that's on the tree and the snake that's there to deceive them. Uh, there are just so many different parallels when you look not only at Greek mythology and the Greek religion, but many others. So the ancient religions that were surrounding the Hebrews throughout Mesopotamia and nearby, they had cosmologies that placed a council of gods as ruling above humanity. Now, I have talked about this a few times in this podcast, but it is definitely worth bringing out here a little more. Now, typically, this council of gods, the, the gods, they lived in gardens and or mountains. Often it was a garden on a mountain and in places out of reach to humanity and a perfect vision of what the rest of the earth could be. They had perfection up at the top of their mountain in their beautiful garden. There was typically one god who would be supreme and usually his son would be the leader of the council. There is often a cycle of rebellion among the gods where a member of the council would challenge the head god, and typically they had different views of how humanity should be treated. Oftentimes that was the son that was rebelling against the father, but other times it was other gods that were rebelling against whoever the leader of that council was. You can look at the Baal cycle as a good example of this. Now, the Garden of Eden was traditionally thought to be a perfect garden, on a mountain. There are other references to it being up high and Adam and Eve coming down. So the idea of it being on a mountain. And biblically, God, the Most High, is above all other gods. There is no one else like him. So he is the leader. He is the true God, the only God like him. But Yeshua, his son, is a high priest and a judge who intercedes for us on our behalf to the Most High 
and has a rulership position on the council. So it's this idea of being a most high God, then his son ruling on the council. There was a rebellion biblically when some spiritual beings, some gods chose to go against the most high and there were interactions between them and mankind. You can reference the Nephilim that I just mentioned before that were handled in ways that were contrary to God's ways. Obviously, the spiritual beings, the gods coming down and having relations with human women, that was not in line with what the Most High wanted and how he wanted to rule over mankind and interact with them. And so there was this rebellion. Now, the difference here is that in the biblical account, that rebellion fails. Whereas in most every other religion and mythology, the rebellion succeeds, and whoever caused that rebellion and those gods that came down, they end up, usually there's some sort of strife and warfare and some negative things that happen with humanity, but they are looked at later as being the good guys, so to say. And just imagine this, if there really are gods that are above humanity, and some of them rebelled and failed, but they still had power. They still were gods or spiritual entities that had a lot of influence and power. What would you tell the humans that you are now interacting with? Uh, Oh, I rebelled against the Most High, but I failed. So, you know, I got kicked out and Sucks to be me, I'm the loser. Well, no, you'd probably say, oh, I rebelled and I'm so successful, you should worship me and I will give you all of these great things. And so, you know, you can kind of see how that might play out if that was actually something that happened. So the following passages that I will read from the biblical account are kind of drawing on this idea. There's a few different phrases that are used. You've got the hosts of heaven or the watchers or the assembly of the holy ones. This is all talking about the gods or Elohim is another word for gods. So I'll start with Psalm 82. It says, Elohim, God, stands in the divine assembly. There with the Elohim, the other gods, he judges. How long will you go on judging unfairly, favoring the wicked? Give justice to the weak and fatherless. Uphold the rights of the wretched and the poor. Rescue the destitute and needy. Deliver them from the power of the wicked. They don't know. They don't understand. They wander about in darkness. Meanwhile, all the foundations of the earth are being undermined. My decree is you are Elohim, gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, you will die like mortals, like any prince, you will fall. Rise up, Elohim, God, and judge the earth, for all the nations are yours. And so it's an interesting passage here talking about the gods and a council of gods, but the most high God that's above them. And he's talking about how some of these gods are ruling unfairly and not doing what they should and that they will die like mortals. And this is that probably my understanding at least is in reference to those gods, those spiritual entities that did rebel and that will be judged and that God will deal with them like mortals. And so this is what the psalmist is referencing and asking the Most High God for. Another example would be Psalm 89, verses 5 through 7. Let the heavens praise your wonders, Adonai, your faithfulness in the assembly of angels. For who in the skies can compare 
with Adonai? Which of these gods can rival Adonai? A god dreaded in the great assembly of the holy ones and feared by all around him. So again, it's this picture, the assembly of the angels, the assembly of the holy ones, all of these gods, which of these gods can rival Adonai? That would be the most high God. And so again, it's this picture of there being lots of gods, but there is one most high God. And so uh, another really interesting one to me would be 1 Kings 22. This would be 19 through 23. says, um, and this is talking about uh, Ahab, who was a king at the time that was wicked, and God thought that he should be punished. But instead of just doing something about it, he goes to the council. So here are those verses. And he said, Hear thou, therefore, the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said on this manner, and one said on that manner. And there came forth a spirit and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, Wherewith? And he said, I will go forth, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And he said, Thou shalt persuade him, and prevail also. Go forth and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these thy prophets, and the Lord hath spoken evil concerning thee. And that would be the end. And that is the King James Version, by the way, which is why the wording is a little different, all the thous and such. And so the idea here, though, is that God was judging Ahab. He was a wicked king. God was going to deal with him. But he goes to the council and puts forth this aspect, this thing that needs to happen and gets input. And so, again, it's this idea of free will that I talked about, I think, two episodes ago. But the idea that things can think independently and they do have free will. You can't have perfection without that. And that is even true. As above, so below is another concept. There are some uh, uh, corrupted versions of interpretation of that concept, but there is a true form here. And that would be the idea of the spiritual world is very similar to our physical world. The spiritual beings are similar to human beings. There are similarities because there is an order and structure to the universe. And it's the same order and structure because it all comes from the same source. And so hopefully this all kind of goes right in line for you. And so this is a very interesting one to me. But the the next section I'll skip over and not read entirely because I've been reading a lot of different verses here. But there's one in Daniel 7 where he says, As I watched, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient One took his seat. And later it says, Then the court was convened and the books were opened. So it's talking about the Ancient One is the Most High, and then the court was convened. That would be the court of spiritual entities of the gods, the Elohim, and it's that same idea here. And another one earlier in Daniel, Daniel chapter 4, at one point he says, I looked in the visions of my head as I lay down on my bed, and there appeared a holy watcher coming down from heaven. And this idea of the watchers would be the idea of the gods, these spiritual entities. 
And uh, later, as the Watcher is talking, he says, This order is issued by the Watchers. The sentence is announced by the Holy Ones, so that all who live may know that the Most High rules the human kingdom, and that he gives it to whomever he wishes, and can raise up over it the lowliest of mortals. And so it's this idea that there is a Most High, and he does rule over all of humanity, but... There are orders that are issued by the watchers, by the gods. The sentence is announced by the holy ones, by the gods. And this is something that, again, is right in line with the Greek mythology, at least if you look at it from a general structure, a conceptual structure of how the world was ordered according to the Greeks, as well as many other religions, it does fit very well with these aspects of the biblical concept of how that structure is. And so I I wanted to draw that out uh, fairly detailed, at least give some examples here, because that's not a common perspective that most people hear from Christians or from a church or from a glance at the Bible or trying to read it on your own without really understanding what it's talking about. And I think, personally, that it's a very important aspect, and it's a perspective that fits so well with all of these other ideas, all of these other philosophies and religions and mythologies, and that lends it some credence in my book that it is in line with all of these other things. It's not like it's this totally separate thing that's envisioning this totally different way the world works. Now, there are differences, definitely, but the general structure is in line with most of what all humanity has believed. And so there's probably something to that. So all of these concepts from other cultures and religions should sound very familiar to the Christian who has read their Bible and has understood this idea of the gods or the spiritual realm and that order. So as you look at what these other philosophies and religions believed and wrote about and talked about, It's as though they are mere shadows of the truth, just a hint of a higher and better reality. It hadn't been revealed to them as it has been to us, but it was there and it was visible nonetheless. Now, this should give you your references to the allegory of the cave and being able to divine things from the natural world. So there were seeds of truth that were handed down and revealed from various sources. But if all reality stems from one source then it makes sense that all these traditions would have commonalities with that original source. It just makes sense. It also makes sense that the further away one gets chronologically from the source, the larger the gaps will be between the tradition and the source. So if there are gods, spiritual beings, fallen angels, watchers, demons, powers, principalities, whatever you want to call them, if there are these entities that actively rebelled against the source truth, and purposefully planted seeds of perversion and deception, something not in line with the natural order. They rebelled against the natural order, so they are more in line with chaos. And that's why it would be perversion and deception. Then that would also fit with the concept that there was a common source that they would all have connections to while having important perversions of the story included as well. For this and other reasons, we would need to be careful not to read too much into other sources of knowledge while they have found pieces of truth and some of their wisdom is useful and true. All of it has to be checked by the 
actual truth, by the true source, by the natural order of things, by the scriptures, if you look at the biblical tradition here. So again, many traditions have fallen so far from the source that they've become mostly just myth. And that is something that has befallen many things. But again, if you especially go back to the ancient religions, they all have a lot of similarities. And it makes a whole lot of sense when you look at those and assess those through the lens of the biblical worldview of probably what the early church was looking at it through. So, for example, in 1 Timothy, um, this is 1 Timothy 6, 20, 20 through 21, says, O Timothy, keep safe what has been entrusted to you. Turn away from the ungodly babblings and the argumentative opposition of what is falsely called knowledge. For many who promise this knowledge have missed the mark as far as the faith is concerned. Grace be with you. And so missed the mark is the idea of what sinning is. If you, I think Vin referenced that in the second Vin Armani interview I did as well. Uh, he talks about it in the book, I know at least. But then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, 1 through 4, it says, I solemnly charge you before God and the Messiah Yeshua who will judge the living and the dead when he appears and establishes his kingdom. Proclaim the word. Be on hand with it, whether the time seems right or not. Convict, censor, exhort with unfailing patience and with teaching. For the time is coming when people will not have patience for sound teaching, but will cater to their passions and gather around themselves teachers who say whatever their ears itch to hear. Yes, they will, stu- they will stop listening to truth, but will turn aside to follow myths." And this one should really uh, touch base with how the world is going now. That, does this sound familiar? Let me reread that last part here. For the time is coming when people will not have patience for sound teaching, but will cater to their passions and gather around themselves teachers who say whatever their ears itch to hear. Yes, they will stop listening to the truth, but will turn aside to follow myths. And this is what's going on, especially if you look at that view of the historical patterns and cycles and shifting into a spiritual age, a mystical age. This, you know, is really what's happening. Not looking at truth, not looking at reason, but instead following myth and following these people that seem so enlightened and philosophical and, oh, we'll hang on their every word. And yeah, look at the Church of Woke and them following for all of these different concepts and these ideas and these high and mighty goals and principles. But when you really get down to the truth of what is going on, none of it really lives up to the ideals of these principles. And none of it, well, most of it, is not in line with the natural order of things, which is what we are trying to focus on here in this section on the natural order. The final concept that I wanted to talk about was the concept of the trivium, which again comes from the Greeks, and I have talked a lot about on this podcast. It has come up many times over the past few seasons, and so if you're not familiar with trivium, then well, I'll give you a very basic rundown, but you know, ideally you go back and listen. But th- if the goal is to understand God and to know what he wants of us, to comprehend him to the extent that we can, then we need 
a way of doing so. We need some sort of structure, some sort of philosophy, some way to understand this thing that can't be understood, <laughs> this idea of the logos that is this ideal, this perfection that we only see partially. We only see an imperfect version of different aspects of this thing. It's the allegory of the cave. It's these types of things. Well, this structure of trying to understand who God is or what God is or what this natural order is, we can apply the trivium. That's a very good contribution from the Greeks, and especially in this context. So overall, the trivium was a learning method that is made up of three parts. You have grammar, logic, and rhetoric. It's been used by many different people throughout history, many different structures since the time of the classic Greek philosophers. It is still a structure for some education models today. A lot of homeschoolers use that model, the trivium. It was used in Rome at different periods in time. So it is definitely something that has stood the test of time. The trivium method works really well when you use it to help to build the foundation for the natural order here. So if you think of the first part, the grammar. The grammar portion relates to the base foundational concepts. The easiest example to use would be language, which definitely makes sense with grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Language was the natural example to use here, but it can be applied to just about anything if you understand how to do so. So within any given language, there are base components that the language is built on. These would be things like letters or symbols or punctuation, sentences, words, these types of things. So in order to understand the language, you must first get a grasp on these structures on how the language is formed. And that would be the grammar aspect. So the grammar, kind of like the word word, when we get into logos and debar and talked about that, it's not just about the word. Grammar is not just words. It's all of these base foundational concepts to make up the language. That would be grammar. Now, the next phase would be logic, which relates to how the grammar relates to itself. So how it works, what we can learn from it, these types of things. So in language, this would be understanding the meaning of something written or spoken. Grammar will give you words and sentences, but these hold very little meaning without being able to understand what is being expressed or communicated by this grammar. So even if you know what the definitions of words are, it takes another step to put it all together and understand how the grammar coalesces to get across a specific idea or a concept or a goal, and this would be the aspect of logic. Now, finally, you would get to rhetoric, the third and final part. Rhetoric comes into play and applies to the application of the former or the ability to use the former to achieve desired ends, the former being the grammar and the logic especially. So one can know all there is to know from a book, but it will yield very limited value if that knowledge cannot be applied and used. With language, this is done through writing and speaking. So more than this, rhetoric refers to being able to fully explain the grammar and the logic 
along with your own insight to others effectively. That is the idea of rhetoric. This would include giving a convincing argument, teaching someone a concept they didn't understand, explaining how to accomplish a task, accurately relating your thoughts to someone else, changing someone's mind on a subject, and similar things like this. These would all be examples of using rhetoric. So to apply this to God and the natural order, you, you use the same framework, but we'll work backwards. Since God is what we're trying to understand, he is the grammar. Well, in order to understand that, you start at the opposite end and work towards it. So instead of going grammar, logic, rhetoric, we'll go rhetoric, logic, grammar. So we must start on the other end of the spectrum with rhetoric. Now, he has communicated himself to us in many ways. He designed creation. He made the laws of nature. He gave Mosaic law. He spoke through the prophets. He taught through Yeshua's ministry and communicates through his spirit. And there are many other examples of getting the rhetoric of God, of the Logos, of the Creator. We have access to all of these, but in order to make use of them, we must first understand them. We must learn the logic of God. We've got the rhetoric. We've got all these ways in which the natural order is shown to us and is apparent to us, some direct and some indirect, but we really want to understand what that natural order is and how it works together. What is the logic of it? The logic is very similar to the concept of logos. It's the principles of God. It's his desire for how the world should be and the order he has created. We use his rhetoric to determine the overarching principles and universal order that exists throughout all time and throughout all creation, something that's outside of time, if you reference the previous episode. So the best example of this is the Logos, as it is described biblically, and that would be Yeshua. So his rhetoric would be his teaching and actions. And again, that is the rhetoric of God. But his teaching focused on this concept of taking God's rhetoric, the law, the prophets, the writings, as well as the rhetoric of his own teaching at the time, and excavating the true logic behind them. The law was just rhetoric. That doesn't mean that it isn't important, but it does mean that there is much more behind and beyond it. And that was one of the main points of Yeshua's teachings. There is a logic that is being expressed through the law that goes well beyond the words of the law. So it's not just about the letter of the law. It's about truly understanding the principles of the law, understanding the logic. Don't just go off of the rhetoric. You also have to have the logic. And you also have to know the source. You've got to know the grammar. So again, the final aspect of the Trinity would be the Most High, God the Father. Ultimately, he is unknowable to a vast extent. But once we have studied his rhetoric, been influenced by his spirit, understood as much as we can about his logic and his principles, and accepted the teachings of Yeshua and the actions that he performed, then we can be able to grasp at least a glimpse of what... God is. What is this natural order of things? Who is the most high? Well, you've got to go through these steps and understand each portion in order to truly understand something, at least, of 
God, you can get little pieces, but if you want the most you can get, this is the way to do it. We can begin to know more about his character, his desire for us, his purpose, and other attributes that make up a piece of who he is, many pieces of who he is. But we are limited in our capacity and our capability of understanding and in the amount of revelation that is given to us. And so frameworks like the Trivium can give us a way to make the best use of what we have to get as far as we are able to get with it. So again, it's this whole idea of if we want to understand the natural order of things, we want to understand the Most High. We see that in all of these religions and all of these mythologies, there is a Most High and there is a council of gods and there is a battle between order and chaos, between light and dark. And the biblical account of all of these things is the one thing that ties to all of them. So a lot of these different mythologies and religions have some similarities. The Greeks might have some similarities to the Romans and the Native Americans might have some similarities to some of the Eastern religions and so on and so forth. But the commonality between all of these is that they all have comparisons and parallels to Christianity. Christianity is the one thing that's in the center with all of these connections to all of these other mythologies and religions. It is the one that has the most connection to the most numbers. And especially as you go back as close as you can to the source, to the most ancient religions and mythologies, they are extremely in line. Think of the accounts of floods that exist in almost every single religion and mythology around the world or the aspect of a Most High God and the Council of Gods, or that there is a Most High God and he has a son who rules over this council or rules over human beings, or the aspect of some spiritual entities that are depraved or that are rebellious or that are against the natural order. They are representing chaos and they interact with humanity. All of these things exist in almost every religion, but then there are so many other aspects of each religion that are different aspects, but they do correlate with these ideas in the biblical account. So this is something that is very useful to understand, because if there was a source, then it would make sense that they all had the same source and that they would all point to that source. And so if we want to better understand what this source is, understand more about it, Again, using this uh, learning method of the trivium really gives us a good way to break that down and better understand it. So we can understand the grammar. What is the natural order? We understand the logic. How does it work together? How does it work with humanity, with nature, with the universe, with the laws of nature? And the rhetoric, how is it relayed to us? How can we see that? How can we divine it from the natural order? How can I look at nature and be able to figure something out because nature is that rhetoric of the natural order. We can use nature as an example of what the natural order is. So how do I define the natural order by looking at nature? Well, I'm using nature as the rhetoric, again, working backwards, to see what the natural order is, or at least how it works together, how different concepts work together, some basic principles, that would be the logic. And once I can understand what those principles are through the rhetoric that I see, then I can better understand and get a glimpse of what that grammar is behind that logic. That would be the idea of God, the most high of the logos, because that would have been the source of the logic that is then expressed through the rhetoric. And I will get into 
the overall idea of the natural order in the next episode. And this is one that I am extremely looking forward to. I have been digging into this a lot lately. It's relatively new to me. And it's something that I have only just in the past probably few weeks actually figured out what the framework is and what some of these basic principles are. And I've jotted down some notes and some outlines on how they work together and defining them and these kinds of things. So this will be kind of my big reveal for all of this. So hopefully you'll really enjoy that. I think it is very good. I personally think so. So hopefully you will think so too. Uh, With that, I think I'm going to wrap up this episode. I do want to let you know, though, that I did an interview with Adam Patrick from, what is it, the You're Talking Over Me podcast. And so that would be Y-E-R, Talking Over Me. And uh, that's a podcast where he's interviewed a lot of great people. He's interviewed uh, Pete Quinones is one that you'd probably remember. He did Vin Armani. He's done lots of people that you would probably recognize. So you can go back and look at his other interviews, and I'm sure you'd enjoy it. But the recent episode that was released a few days ago, as of when this one's going to be released, was one that I did with him on historical cycles and patterns in history. And basically, if you have listened to the Vin Armani series I did starting with episode 111 and all the elaboration episodes and all that stuff that we did, especially those first few episodes. In a sense, the interview that I recently did on the You're Talking Over Me podcast kind of crammed all of that together into one episode and layered all of these different social cycle theories and historical cycles onto each other and went through that and layered it according to my own framework, the ages of man, and stacked them all on top of each other. So if you look at the first age of the ages of man, then what does this cycle say about it? What does this social theory say about it? What does this one say about it? And kind of stack all of these descriptions of each age and they all match up really well. So it was really cool to get to pair all of those together and go through all of them in one episode. So I would highly recommend, even if you've listened to those others, especially if you've listened to those others on my show, if you go back and listen to this one on his, where they're all brought together in one place, I think you'll get a lot out of it. I think especially people who have listened to Uh, mainly that Venormani series, starting with episode 111, especially that one, because that's really when we got into things. Um, Especially if you've listened to that, you'll get a lot more out of it, because I'm going through it fairly quickly on this interview I did with Adam. And that's something that if you're unfamiliar with these concepts and topics, people are probably missing out on a lot or having to listen to it two or three times to understand it. But if you already have a base understanding, then it should really crisp things up for you, and you should be able to get a lot more out of it. So I would recommend that. I've also had a few other hosts of different podcasts that have reached out to me lately, and I should be going on a few other shows to talk about some different concepts, and I will definitely keep you aware of what those are. Now, for those who are Patreon supporters, I will try to get a copy of that interview and all the interviews that I do and upload that on the Patreon page, and that way you can have one place to look at all the different guest appearances that I have done. You get your own private podcast feed through Patreon. And really what I release on there are mostly 
early release episodes or guest appearances I've done, or if I do a long interview that's broken up into sections, I'll release the whole thing on Patreon. So those are the types of things that I will release on there. I don't do a lot of exclusive episodes just because I really don't have the time, to be honest. And so that is a place where you can get that, but I'll also put it on the website with links. You can find, uh, I'm not really sure where it is, actually, off the top of my head, but I'm guessing there's a tab that says guest appearances or something like that. I'm sure you can figure it out. But if you go to the website, there is a place that I have all my other guest appearances listed, and I will update that sometime in the relatively near future to include this most recent one as well. So with that, I will just say thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for all of your support, your financial support, your feedback, your reviews and ratings. Uh, greatly appreciated. That's something that really helps out people that are active on Twitter and are retweeting things and liking things and commenting on things and recommending me to other people. That is also something that has really been helpful, especially lately. So thank you very much for all of these different kinds of support. I will talk to you next time. I'm out. Peace. This has been our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs> Bye-bye.